From the Field is the brainchild of a passion for storytelling and the ways that individual stories and lived experiences combine to create the world around us. The political and economic, the social and cultural, the international and local. Each episode will focus on a specific issue area in a different country, interviewing individuals that specialize in these issue areas. While it is important to gain the technical knowledge from these individuals, we must also unravel individual stories and how these paths have shaped where they are today. On this episode, we'll be focusing on global value chains, activism, and workers' rights in Bangladesh. This conversation will be centered around a conversation with Saida, who's a Bangladeshi activist, and my friend Luke. Luke, can you introduce yourself and your experience in Bangladesh, and what motivates you to talk about this topic? Hello, everyone. Um, I worked in an international NGO in Bangladesh for a year. I decided that I want to explore and understand the country, its history, and its culture as much as possible. That is basically why I try to spend as much time as possible outside of the expat bubble. I try to listen to the people and understand their stories. I learned about their dreams and hopes and their lived realities. I experienced incredible hospitality. They shared the food with me and gave me something to drink and I listened to them. This made me realize the importance of dialogue and conversation in understanding the needs and aspirations of marginalized groups. My story as a white man from a rich industrialized country was often very different from theirs. You ask me what motivates me for this podcast. Well, I see my role as helping to shape a world that is more just, even if I'm quite overwhelmed as to how exactly to do that. But I see a lot of potential in listening, understanding and in having conversations. That is why I think this podcast is important. Before we start talking about global value chains and the garment industry, I want to emphasize two things. The first thing I want to emphasize is that the solution is not to boycott garments in Bangladesh. The solution is also not something imposed from the global north on the global south. The solution is extremely complex and something I will probably not live to see. The solution requires a complete rethinking of the conception of development, its geographies and power relations, on a universal level, in both Globe North and South, together. The second point I want to emphasize is that discussions about the garment industry are important. However, only one single story of Bangladesh is being told, primarily the story of misery. I want to explicitly emphasize that there are many untold stories in this podcast. Stories which should be told as well. Bangladesh is so much more than the Made in Bangladesh printed on t-shirt labels. Bangladesh is full of warm hospitality. Bangladesh is fuchka, biryani, kalabuna, hisafish, kitchery. Bangladesh is the hustle and bustle of old Dhaka and the chirping of birds in the beautiful Shundabans mangrove forest. Bangladesh is the Bohela Boishak celebration and the Shubo no Bonoboshu greetings. Bangladesh is full of traditional music, dance, festivals and handicraft. The podcast is full of untold stories. Keep that in mind.
Thanks, Luke. I think our guest, Saida, perfectly encapsulates what you're speaking about here. By working as a journalist and labor rights defender, Saida puts into question these inequalities and exploitative labor practices that the global economic system relies upon. Saida, can you introduce yourself, your background, and your commitment to women's rights? You started fighting for these things at a really young age. What's your underlying ideology or drive that keeps you fighting these battles where others may have given up? I think from 1996 to 2001 was the first regime when Aumi League was in government um, after the assassination of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman. So the student leader affiliated with the ruling Aumi League, he had celebrated his 100th, 100th century rape on campus. And he distributed sweets among the students in his residential hall. We were outraged, understandably so, and um, furious, at times helpless, but we took to streets and for days and for weeks um, uh, we were in the, on the streets demanding um, punishment for the students, especially the man uh, who celebrated 100th, 100th rape. Eventually the rapist student, after about nine, I think, um, seven weeks of protest at a stretch, the rapist student was expelled from the campus and the demand of an anti-sexual harassment cell and an anti-sexual harassment policy for educational institutions gained uh, public attention and um, policy attention. So um, the movement, uh, uh, I think, got recognized or remembered today as a significant chapter in women's movement in Bangladesh. Uh, in the face, because it was able to include, or if not include at the very moment, but it was able to establish the importance of having um, the, con I, the concept of sexual harassment to be included in the social and legal vocabulary up until then, to complain sexual harassment, to say it, coming it from a girl was itself is very uh, ideologically uh, shamed upon. So um, that was definitely a significant chapter and it was in that sense a victorious moment. But um, for me or for many of us, it was, we, we were not as jovial as we were, as we were expected to be because in the face of the fierce movement, um, the university authority were uh, were forced to form an investigation committee. They put out a call uh, for women, girls um, on campus to submit complaints, but the call was not inclusive. It was not. It didn't include working class women on campus even though there were allegations that women who worked on dorm canteens were also subjected to similar violence and harassment. Um, as I said, uh, the, un the unresolved question, class question in the movement against sexual violence, sexual harassment on campus became glaring, glaringly evident to me. And um, I think that is when we realized how um, movement, again, it's, movement is a constant process. It's not a demand that you um, sometimes, it's, it, it's not a, con the, what you achieve from a movement is 
not a co- concrete thing rather a process a vision and uh, that's how i think um it all started for me and for many of us who were part of that movement great thanks for contextualizing all of that in regards to global value chains and the race to the bottom in search of the cheapest labor can you speak to the ways in which women are exploited within this system and how sexual violence intersects with the labor market exploitation my first answer for the question is we're um for the past decades we're at, we're in a political uh climate in which toxic violent masculinity is part of the political culture for any uh, any government uh, any political party that is in power in order to gain uh, territorial control and political benefits they use masculine violence ma- uh, toxic masculinity to maintain that, to um maintain their territorial control to maintain their power to exert power at times so in such a situation and we are seeing a right in the and the moment when amili is in power for the th- for three consecutive times we are seeing the worst um worst uh, form of ex- uh, form of mass male violence expression of male violence in political and social spaces where uh, rape sexual violence or different kinds of um uh, uh scandalization of women for political purposes all are um part of the political uh, inventory of political tools for ruling party and ru- ruling quarter so in that moment it would be in this situation in this political social cultural climate it is um it will be um naive to assume that the garment sector the ma- apparel sector or any industrial sector is immune to um the violence sexual violence or the male violence that is prevailing in other context but a longer answer for the question uh would be related to more everyday form of uh violence and gen- gender based violence and discrimination in the um last rung of the global value chain which is the cheap labor or the women garment workers in the in this chain um uh, as we all know women in bangladesh i mean they are included in the formal economy as cheap labor their inclusion coincided with the you you indicate for women terms at the time terms or ideas like women's empowerment and gender main, mainstreaming were ga- gaining momentum in the international development sector so women were included without resolving the pre-existing gender uh, patriarchal uh, patriarchal ideological biases and discrimination and their inclusion may, may it is make it may their inclusion in the formal economic sector inclusion in the formal labor market made them more visible but as cheap labor of the global apparel industry global buyers and local factory owners alike where they are all, they were talk, taking credit they are still taking credit for creating an economic opportunity for women in poverty to be included in the global value chain but at what cost i mean 
um they ha- they have been included they are still part of this uh, global chain but without resolving the patriarchal uh, biases that existed in the society and I, I, let me explain what i'm trying to say here um i the growth of the garment industry in the, it, it became i think what i'm trying to say is that it became it, but the growth of the industry in bangladesh became possible because uh, they are mutually re- reinforcing the patriarchal and capitalist rule of things patriarchal and capitalist rule of orders they have not unsettled either of the order either of the system the prevailing gender division of labor is reintroduced within the factory floors women women are the majority in the sector but they are rarely promoted as line manager as floor manager a, a women worker start as a helper and they uh, after 10 years of work they they will leave the sector as swing operator and rarely as senior swing operator never a line manager very i mean um because it's assumed that they can't manage a whole section of the worker in factory spaces so that patriarchal understanding is there it's reintroduced in introduced in the factory space sexual harassment within the factory is widely reported if you if you search in the google you'll find many many report many research studies that uh, shows how how prevalent sexual harassment is in the apparel se- apparel industrial sector and i was just talking about how the sexual harassment movement in bangladesh has begun in 1988 and around from this from that very mo- very year we we also started demanding that the sexual harassment sales and policy be introduced in garment sectors in industrial sector as well it it has not been formally effectively introduced um for the workers in the industrial sector even now okay luke can you drop us the facts on how bangladesh came to play such a role in the global garment industry sure grace always ready for some facts The story of Bangladesh's textile industry doesn't start in 1978 with the setup of a ready-made garment factory by South Korea's Chabol Dayo and the local producer Desh. In fact, the region has manufactured textiles for many centuries. Under Mughal rule, Bengal was the center of the worldwide trade in muslin fabric and silk and its capital city Dhaka the main center of cotton production. Estimates suggest that Bengal Suba which was a subdivision of the Mughal Empire which included the areas of modern Bangladesh and the Indian state of West Bengal was one of the wealthiest regions in the world during the 16th and 18th century however mid 19th century the british east india company assumed direct control over bengal subsequently under british colonization the bengali market was forced open to british goods while britain implemented various protectionist policies such as high tariffs and bans to restrict the imports of bengali cotton cloth to britain these protectionist policies together with the harsh competition from imports of manufactured textiles from britain forced local producers in bengal out of business leading to the deindustrialization of the bengal textile industry this had long term consequences for the region's economic development and its place in the global economy At the same time, the British textile industry 
was experiencing a period of rapid growth, fueled by technological advancement and its access to raw materials from its colonies. This led to the rise of industrial centers such as Manchester, which became known as Cottonopolis due to its dominance in cotton textile production. But let's jump back to the year 1974, when developed countries, primarily in Europe and North America, implemented the multi-fiber arrangement, basically to protect their textile industries by restricting imports from countries such as South Korea. The multi-fiber arrangement, I call it an industrial policy, provided an opportunity to very poor countries such as Bangladesh. South Korea, facing already exhausted quotas on its textile exports, was looking for countries that could become new manufacturing destinations and therefore started to invest in Bangladesh. Hence, Bangladesh did not pick the garment industry, the garment industry picked Bangladesh. Today, the Bangladeshi ready-made garment industry generates around 28 billion US dollars a year, creates over 80% of the total export earnings and employs around 4 million workers, most of whom are women. So we've talked a bit about how women play a role in this global value chain. Let's now widen the scope of this story and consider how workers' rights can be strengthened while maintaining the sector's competitiveness is of great importance in the globalized economy. Luke, can you elaborate on this a bit? The notion of value in global value chains obscures the fact that value creation is not evenly distributed and shared among the actors in these chains. Let me first explain for the listeners of this podcast what we mean by social upgrading global value chains. Social upgrading is the process of improving the rights and entitlements of workers as social actors. For example, access to better work, better working conditions, protections or rights, such as the right to collective bargaining, non-discrimination, voice and so on. In a buyer-driven commodity chain, such as the textile industry, Developed country lead firms, such as large retailers like Walmart or global brands such as Nike, set up global sourcing networks to procure labor-intensive textile products. The global garment market is a buyer's market, meaning few buyers, many sellers. Therefore, lead firms have the ability to set prices, product specification, process standards and delivery schedules which leaves a low profit margin of firms in countries of the Global South. In other words, these lead firms are very powerful in governing the value chain. For example, Walmart. A country of equivalent economic value to Walmart is Vietnam. But it is not just Walmart. The 50 largest companies hold a combined wealth equal to that of 100 nations. For example, Gap has an economic value equivalent to the country Niger. H&M's economic value equals the one of Benin, Nike the one of Mongolia. Because these lead firms are so powerful and operate on a global level, the capacity of non-corporate stakeholders, including nation-states, to govern these global value changes is often contingent upon the extent to which this coincides with the interest of the corporate sector. Bangladeshi garment factories have to provide products with maximal quality to meet buyers' standards, while maintaining costs and prices at the same time. Hence, social upgrading faces a structurally embedded underlying constraint, namely that the factories have to ensure both quality and flexibility, which can only be achieved through the use of a low-wage labor force, often by either subcontracting, 
cutting costs in safety measures or reducing workers' real wage by increasing working hours, cutting benefits or not spending on other facilities. Great, thanks Luke. And Saida, how do you feel workers' rights can be protected and strengthened within the industry while Bangladesh continues to maintain a competitive edge in this globalized economy? If we are truly committed to the cause of workers' rights, not as defined by ILO or other similar organizations, but as perceived by workers, um, if we consider labor rights in terms of the live realities of workers. Um, I do not think it is possible to protect, worker, protect workers' rights and maintain the sector's competitive edge. And uh, let me explain why I think um, that it is not possible. Um, as I said before, for global buyers, Bangladesh gained visibility for its cheap, expendable labor for surplus, surplus lives. For Bangladeshi factory owners, their competitive edge is also the disposable lives of the workers in this country. Local factory owners, but um, there is, I mean, the factory owners has um, another added uh, privilege in, the, in Bangladesh. And Luke, you probably know a little bit of this situation. Lo local factory owners also get involved in the sector to enjoy unreasonable tax benefits subsidized loan schemes and schemes and services which were ex extremely i mean more more and more visible during the covid time how the government has given so many tax benefits and subsidized loan services for the apparel industrial owners so the industry can survive all this while the workers were forced to work throughout the covid with no um uh, work uh, health safety protocols maintained you know how i mean look you probably remember how workers are forced to walk home and then re suddenly return home return to work and all that chaos so um for the so the question you're asking will be easier to, uh, it will be easier for me to answer if the industry uh, if if we think i mean if we take that the industry and the global value chain, chain is work, operating under the written and formal policies of neoliberal economy. I mean, there is a um, ideal situation which we read when we when we try to understand neoliberal economy, but that is, however, not the case in rea in reality and in practice. It is, there is a shadow economy. The tax benefit, the um, the subsidized loan benefit, loan services that we're talking about, that is not the rule of the um, game for a neoliberal eco economy. So the competitive edge or the this value chain has an untold shadow, shadow economy, which keeps it running. Um, and that, it, I think the, the um, and in this shadow economy, the workers' workers' lives are treated as surplus lives, which are 
expendable disposable and these lives that is where the lives that is where the competitive age or the our discussion of competitive age revolves around and in that context i think talks of workers rights is a fallacy it's a, a smoke screen that keeps us busy but uh, while the shadow economy the profit margin and the accumulation of wealth for for 1% of the world continues to takes place so well considering that over 70% of international trade involves global value chains access to high income yielding activities requires the participation in global value chains the issue today to achieve economic growth is not whether to participate in the global economy, but the mode in which countries, regions and firms participate in the global economy. A useful model to better understand the mode in which countries and firms participate in global value chains is the smiley curve. The smiley curve is a graphical depiction of how value added varies across different stages of production. The two ends of the value chains, namely the conception and marketing, command higher values added to the product than the middle part of the value chain, the manufacturing process. High value added prefabrication tasks such as research, design and finance and high value added postfabrication tasks such as selling and marketing are often taken over by developed countries while low added production in form of manufacturing is outsourced to low income countries. In short, the primary economic rents in a value chain, such as the textile industry, are accumulated in the parts outside of the production. In concrete numbers of a t-shirt for which one, mm, I don't know, pays 29 euros in a developed country store, around 17 euros will accrue to the retail, covering costs for staff, rent, store profit, value added taxes. 3 euros and 60 cents will be profit for the brand. 1 euro and 15 cents are the profit for a factory in Bangladesh. And 18 cents is the pay to the worker. Lead firms choose subcontracting as this shifts risks such as the demand volatility to subcontractors. For instance, the cancellation of orders and the refusal to pay for already ordered garment goods during COVID-19 crisis in 2020 left suppliers in Bangladesh and other countries to recuperate the costs of production. In such subcontracting relationships, lead firms might have an incentive to share knowledge and transfer skills to their suppliers to increase the quality of the product or make production more efficient. In other words, promote process or product upgrading. Positive effects of potential productivity increases are mainly experienced abroad, since large parts of profits are transferred to lead firms' headquarters abroad, and these multinational corporations, their shareholders and the consumers in the global north are the main beneficiaries. Lead firms, however, don't have an incentive to promote chain or functional upgrading. For instance, if supplies were to move out of production into design, they would become direct competitors with the lead firms. That is basically why on the print of the t-shirt's label it is written made in Bangladesh, but not designed in Bangladesh. Functional and chain upgrading are likely to provide the greatest result for economic development, but poor producers in poor countries face constraints in form of power relations, 
embedded in value chain governance. Lead firms have sold off their non-core businesses and attempt to monopolize profits within the value chain by protecting their knowledge-based assets such as brands and designs. In short, minimize cost to maximize shareholder value. But I want to end with something more positive and powerful. At this point, I would like to mention, I hope I pronounce her name correctly, Rokaya Ahmed Purna, a young fashion designer from Bangladesh. She designed a modern sneaker called Kamtala, turning the paradigm of design in the global north, made in the global south, upside down. The shoe is designed in Bangladesh and made in Portugal. It is a creative statement towards the fashion industry to rethink how they deal with the global south. Back to you, Grace. So, Saida, as we now understand the nature of the situation more deeply, what do you envision as potential paths forward? The question about the competitive edge and workers' rights is, I, if we think of it as a larger long-term goal, goal, and that is where I think it's important for us to acknowledge that in these terms of things, it is probably not possible to ensure workers' rights and um, value workers' lives. But there is also an immediate reality because, no, come on, no matter what we say, capitalism is here and it is here to stay. <laughs> um, and in that immediate uh, reality, there, there are pressing concerned, uh, concerns and there are issues that we should fight for and continue to fight for un- until and unless that demand is realized. And the... I would like to uh, talk about three part. I think three particular, um, yeah, three particular concerns that are from the movement labor movement perspective are main concerns of the workers in Bangladesh today. First and foremost, of course, the uh, practice of poverty wage. Um, uh, you probably know the current minimum wage is uh, for a apparel worker is taka 8000 which is uh, around 75 us dollar and when we t- see bangladeshi garment worker a woman from bangladeshi apparel workers smiling and looking in front of a, a sewing machine um, we don't see the overtime work that she does and we don't know we, we don't see the three other family members of her um, from her family is also working in that same factory or in some other factories because with the 8000 taka minimum wage single family a single person from a family earning won't ha- it, it is ne- nearly impossible for for them to survive so yes it is true that uh, inclusion in the labor market through the apparel industry um, has made a difference, created um, access to monetary economy, to money, to financial services for the garment workers and their families. But it it is not an individual. Um, it is it is a, a, for a fa- garment worker to survive. He or she has to involve her at least three or four members of her family in, in the industry. So, and with that earning, they can survive. So there is, the story has many, there, there are 
uh, things that we don't say when we see that picture of a woman earning from a sewing machine and working in a garment factory. So po- the practice of poverty wage must go and we should, of course, globally and locally um, continue to demand for a living wage. That is, that is That should not be our minimum demand, but that is at least what we should keep asking for until it is um, and we get our demand realized. Secondly, um, the second concern that I want to raise is related to Rana Plaza, and as you know, that we're just ten days away from the ten year, from um, ten years of Rana collapse of the Rana Plaza. Um, it is twenty fourth April when more than eleven hundred and thirty four Apple work April workers had died at the site. Um, 10 years later, the compensation clause in our labor law is still the same. Nothing has changed. And according to the labor law as it is now, um, in the case of death in workplace, a garment worker would get about 1,000 US dollar. And in in case of total loss of productivity, if you are fully incapacitated, from a workplace injury, you'll get a little more than a thousand dollar. So we must um, demand compensation and not not just any compensation. Of course, we should work for a, for a situation where death in workplace doesn't happen, injury in workplace doesn't happen, but we should also demand for um, for a law for local and international mechanism through which workers are guaranteed a dignified and acceptable compensation for the labor. Um, and my, the, th- the third concern that I want to raise is related to the co- issue of compensation. It, as you know that after the, in the aftermath of Rana Plaza and Tajrin factory fire, there, are, there were go- global co- alliance mediated by different international labor rights monitoring organizations and a fund was created for Rana Plaza and Tazreen, victim of Tazreen factory fire and global buyers who were involved, who had, who had outsourced from Tazreen and Rana Plaza has contributed to those fund from their corporate social responsibility fund. So what I'm saying, we must demand compensation. I'm saying that we are not demanding charity. What they have done in the in Rana Plaza and Tazreen is that they have given financial assistance from their CSR funds, um, and this process of initiating a global fund and the media campaign and that uh, em- employ- employing a uh, credible um, manager f- to ensure that the compensation is calculated properly, distributed in, a, in an effective manner. The public discourse about um, the corporate criminal liability of all the brands that had outsourced from Tazreen and Rana Plaza has were um, totally um, distracted from the question of corporate criminal liability was 
um, some some got hidden or uh, it was very difficult in that con in that um, overwhelming discourse discourse of public discourse of compensation to talk about corporate criminal liability because uh, what happened ten years l later I wouldn't hesitate to say is that workers were poor and their economic vulnerability was used to absolve these multinational corporates from their criminal liability. mainly talked about actions from Bangladesh, but most of the listeners to this podcast will be actual consumers of, of garments. Um, so when I, after I visited like several garment workers and spoke to them, I was uh, asking myself like, what can I do uh, as a person who uh, basically buys these products? Like, where do you see the roles of, of consumers uh, in improving working conditions and workers' rights in the garment sector? I'm often asked this question, and um, um, I'm answering this question assuming that when you say consumers of the developed countries, you mean citizens of the countries of the global north, right? The distinction between um, consumer and citizen is very crucial to me because if we identify as consumer, we're still speaking keeping the logic of market intact, thinking of how we, we, how we can become an ethical buyer in this system. And as I have said while answering the question of competitive edge, I think uh, you cannot be, act ethically keeping this exploitative chain uh, active. But as global citizen, I think we should entertain the idea of minimalism, reject capitalist extravagance, encourage localism, wear hand-me-down clothes. Do we really need to buy clothes from H&M and Primark or Walmart or Woolgreen? Um, we have to reject the idea and the reality in which these clothing brands and our sub subjectivity, I think, as a co consumer, appear so normal, so natural, that we can't even think beyond that. Um, the changes that we want to see may not happen in our lifetime. What I'm saying may sound really um, obnoxious, and uh, but I, I think um, we an international corporate criminal tri tribunal is an utopia today, but it can be a, real, a reality in some really, really distant f future, only if we choose to say it. And when we are answering this question of what we can do in global north or in the global south, um, it's the the earlier you have asked me questions about um, intersectionality, uh, what the kind of future we want to have the, uh, also depends on how we see labor rights interconnected with all the other problems all the other issues, for example, the environmental um, issues, the issues of uh, consumerism, extremely consumerist, individualist culture. Um, 
we cannot do away one without um, addressing the others. So when I'm talking about minimalism, I'm also I'm rejecting capitalist extravagance. I'm thinking of the labor rights as an interconnected issue, which is not uh, which includes not just women's questions and movement against sexual violence, but also the question of environmentalism um, and a fair economic system. And so that is where that is why I was saying that we must we probably think of encouraging localism. And as I said, wear hand-me-downs, and we should say what we want to, the kind of future we want to see, uh, even if it sounds an utopia today, because in near future maybe it may not be an utopia. I really enjoyed the ways in which you framed this conversation as speaking about a distant future that potentially isn't so distant and the ways in which we need to continually be having utopian conversations, as this is the ways that norms change. How do you continue to have hope for the future? I mean, I see hope in this small conversation. For I mean, hope for the galactic change that we want to imagine. Uh, hope, hope starts from a very small space. And the fact that you reached out to me and uh, we are having this conversation and many, 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 many small conversations like this could lead us to somewhere. And these are um, points of solidarity where we meet and then pass on the baton and someone else keeps the conversation going. So. Um, hope, I don't think, is in the hands of the um, corporation or those in the policy-making houses, but in this conversation where we can keep talking and demanding things that seems impossible today, but perhaps can be done in future. Yeah, that was really beautiful. Yeah, yeah I love that. That's <laughs> like the whole point behind the podcast.